A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps to Detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we look at the latest updates from across the battlefront. And to help us analyse the rising nuclear tensions between Russia and the West, we speak to Matthew Harris, Director of Proliferation and Nuclear Policy at the Defence and Security Think Tank, RUSI. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. It's Friday, the 8th of October, day 226. And today, I'm joined by our associate editor, Dominic Nichols, our assistant comment editor, Francis Durnley, and our guest, Matthew Harris. I started by asking Dom for the latest updates from the battlefront. It's been a fairly, fairly quiet 24 hours in terms of the lines haven't moved much there's still been a lot of uh, a lot of military activity i was hesitating there i wanted to reach for the kinetic kinetic action but um that would uh, immediately lose half the audience what there has been increasing up in the kharkiv front increasingly i think we should be calling that the luhansk front um there have been some some smaller villages taken there which is eating into the luhansk oblast very interesting because of course you know this time last week Putin had his rock concert saying that they were all um, all annexed successfully. So any uh, the increasing nibbles there into that region are politically sensitive, and they are getting very they're getting closer every time they they move east. They are getting closer to um, Lysychansk Severodonetsk Road, that big north south road, the resupply road there. And if they get onto that and they take that and control it, Ukraine, then they uh, the Russian position in Luhansk becomes very very serious indeed. Um, down south in Hezon, the uh, the push has continued there down the Dnipro River. That's the most successful line of advance at the moment. There's some suggestion, uh, not not totally uh, not corroborated yet, but it looks as if Ukrainian forces are getting very close to the Novokokova Dam. That is about 40 kilometres east of the city of Herzon. The dam is one of the crossing points over the Dnipro there. It has been targeted by Ukraine, but not destroyed. Obviously, there'd be a, I mean, it's a massive infrastructure feature so not only do they firstly want that for after the war but secondly the the damage downstream if that was to be destroyed would be significant um however it's thought to be only minimally passable to traffic and not not too heavy 
military traffic in any great numbers. Um, so that, the, but of course, the, they run the risk that as long as that is in Russian hands, not only can Russia use it to get some limited resupplies across, uh, and also possibly a, a way out should they wish wish to do so, but also they are they are holding in that at risk, and they could uh, they could engineer a um, you know, a disaster there. So, so the sooner that Ukrainian forces push on and, and take that down, uh, the better for Ukraine. The next big feature then is the Antonovsky Bridge, uh, which is just on the outskirts of Hezon. That's at the sort of southern end of the Inhilitz River. Again, Ukraine having some advances down from the north, down down that river, pushing towards the city. This is this is um, slowed down in recent days. Be really interesting to talk to Matthew shortly, especially in light of Biden's comments, which we're going to going to talk about. But are we seeing um, an operational pause or at least a slowing down here because the tension over um, nuclear weapons is rising question, question mark we'll come we'll come back to that um, separately today's uh, uk defense intelligence uh, message was talking about the amount of equipment that that has been um, lost from russia to ukraine and and by a lot i'm choosing the words carefully because they are they're not the point that the, the uk di is making is that they are not destroying these things in place they are the, the russian soldiers are fleeing either because the the vehicle breaks down or is damaged in some way, but they are largely being taken intact. And the UK Defence Intelligence estimate is that at least 440 tanks and around 650 other armoured vehicles have been taken by Ukraine. And and they're in a usable condition. The, the DI estimate says, and this is a quote, over half of Ukraine's currently fielded tank fleet potentially consists of captured vehicles. Now, I admit the word potentially there is doing a lot of heavy lifting, but the point they're making, uh, as they go on to say, they are not destroying this equipment in place. It shows a um, poor state of training, discipline. It shows the kind of the panicked nature of which these these equipments are being left. I mean, it, it is not that easy to uh, to destroy some of this equipment in place. Um, I once dropped a, a thunder flash, which is just a big sort of flash bang um, inside inside my turret. I lit it with such such vigour and gusto that I pulled it out of my hand and dropped down between my feet. Um, so, you know, they can put up with a lot of punishment, but even so, there should be a plan to deny this equipment to, um, to in this case, to the Ukrainians so that it's not, that they don't just turn it around and, and use it back against the Russians. So it's, it's an interesting... Um, little, uh, a little sort of magnifying glass on the state of training and, and morale. Um, and I'll just leave you with um, a couple of other things. The, the Institute for Study of War, US think tank, was having a look at the effectiveness of uh, Russian use of ir- Iranian drones, these Shahid-136 drones, these um, um, the, the weaponized, the sometimes called kamikaze drones. I know a lot of people don't like that, that phrase of kamikaze because you know, it could, anything could be, could be kamikaze. But what we mean is they're not specifically there for... Um, surveillance or any kind of other ele- electronic attack um, intelligence gathering they are specifically designed to go and find a target and then and then fly into it um, but they are saying that the um, that they are not russia's use of these drones is, is nothing like um, the way in terms of affecting the war that ukraine have been using for example HIMARS, the u.s HIMARS system the uh, isw is saying that they estimate uh, about 86 of these drones have been used against Ukraine or have been fired against Ukraine, flown against Ukraine, and they're saying 60% have been have been shot down. They go on to say that then they offer very very little in terms of the, their ability to affect the battlefield, and they are largely being fired at civilian targets in in rear areas, and 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 mainly are being used just as a terror weapon. Um, so it's interesting the. 
there'll be the, the reports have yet to be written. The analysis has yet to be written about the use of drones in this um, in this war. However, it's it's not to suggest oh this is the future of warfare and and this is undoubtedly the the only way that they could possibly go because here's an example of where drones just simply are not um, affecting the battlefield that much in the in the view of the ISW. And the final thing I'll mention is um, the Wagner Group, Russia's mercenary group um, has its own telegram channel we are we are told uh, and the suggestion is that this is Yevgeny Prigozhin the guy who who allegedly owns and finances Wagner this is his attempt to have a to have a voice and compete in the social media environment with the likes of Ramzan Kadyrov you know the Chechen leader um, other, other military bloggers we've talked about these these sort of political power plays in the Russian ecosystem around around Putin it's interesting now that um, that Prigozhin, or Wagner, but Prigozhin specifically, uh, is trying to reach out to to get his own his own channel of communication. Um, and on their site uh, called Peacekeeper, uh, it very helpfully says, um, "We arrived from hell. We are Wagner. Our business is death, and business is going well." So it's all very macho stuff there. I can want to rip my shirt off just reading that. But uh, so Wagner are now are now leaning into the information arena, um, which and we will watch with great interest. Thank you. Well, thank you very much uh, for all of that, Dom. That was very comprehensive. At some point, we should, for our new listeners, do a bit of a recap of your military experience because and dropping a massive flashbang in the turret of urine tank, I think it would be a great place to start. But, Francis, can I, can I go to you? Um, there's been some of the big news in, in, in Ukraine and Europe has been uh, the Nobel Peace Prize has, has come out. Uh, can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yes, it's been a significant morning in the announcement, finally, of this year's winners of the Nobel Peace Prize. Now, the winners are a clear rebuke to Putin. That shouldn't come, I think, as a surprise. But coincidentally, it is on the date of his birthday. The first winner to flag, and there are three, is Ukraine's Centre for Civil Liberties, which is one of the key Ukrainian NGOs that bring together volunteers from Ukraine and abroad to document the Russian atrocities committed during the war to meticulously collect the evidence of the crimes and the testimony of the victims. I should add that we actually interviewed Alexandra Mavadichuk, who uh, is heavily involved in that charity, on this podcast back in July and if you're interested in, in listening to that, that is on day 134. Clearly a recognition there of the hard work that is being done within Ukraine to document the atrocities that are taking place. The other winners are also interesting. Memorial, which was a group disbanded at the end of the year, is a very significant group in terms of commemorating, remembering and recording the colossal amount of atrocities that were committed during the Stalinist era and um, under communism more broadly. The millions who were executed, uh, imprisoned and also engaging in advocacy work to try and raise awareness of that. And I've talked about this on the podcast previously. This is significant because they were shut down as a consequence of the war. So the fact that that this has been awarded to this organisation, which were shut down by um, by the Russian state, is again, I think, suggestive of the importance that is being given here. And you can see a theme that's evolving. The last prize uh, under the same banner of the Nobel Peace Prize was awarded to the jailed Alexis Bialyatsky, who founded the Belarusian human rights group Vyazna in 1996. 
And as I say, I think it's worth seeing how these things are combined together. The 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 um, when the winners were announced, the committee chair said, and I quote. The Norwegian Nobel Committee wishes to honour three outstanding champions of human rights, democracy and peaceful coexistence in the neighbour countries, Belarus, Russia and Ukraine. He went on. He hailed them for promoting the right to criticise power and protect the fundamental rights of citizens. They have made an outstanding effort to document war crimes, human rights abuses and the abuse of power. Now, just before I finish, I think it's important to register that there is actually quite a lot of Ukrainian upset at this. The The fact that the Nobel Committee have decided to split the Peace Prize between organisations that are in Ukraine, Belarus and Russia, the latter two, of course, being as states perpetrators in the war, has, has, as I say, caused considerable anger. There's a feeling, I think that the central thread of that is the feeling that is twofold. The one that any state should not that ha, that is involved in this war should not have anybody who is commemorated or or or, or championed by by the nobel um, but the other thread which i think is the, the slightly more nuanced approached is this idea that the three countries have been lumped together in some way that feeds into this kind of Russian narrative that the former Soviet states and Russia are all one people, one Slavic people, um, and and this sort of feeling that this, by the very nature of the way the prize has been awarded, that it, as I say, buys into this um, to this um, historical perspective which Putin likes to push. Now, I think. Of course, I, that, I, that's, it, it's a, a criticism I can understand. I think perhaps another way of reframing it would be that they're actually, the Nobel Committee are trying to ignore the nationalities involved here and look actually at the work of these particular individuals and organisations, which after all are all really working for the same purpose, which is the side of documenting atrocity. And that, as I say, is the central thread that combines them. But as I say, I think it's important to register that there is anger and I think that there will be a continual brewing of controversy out this about this, not only today, but in, in, in the days ahead. Because I don't, I think the anger is, is, is pronounced enough that, um, that it, this isn't going to, to disappear swiftly. Well, thank you very much, Dom and Francis. Matthew Harris, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for coming to talk to us. Um, would you just give us a brief introduction to, to what you do and the kind of things you've been looking at over the past few months? Hi, uh, thanks very much for, for having me on. Um, yeah, so my name is, is Matthew Harris. I work for the Royal United Services Institute, a defence and security think tank um, in the UK. Um, and I'm director of what we call our proliferation and nuclear policy program. So uh, our team um, aims to uh, do research and um, hold discussions about the threat from uh, weapons of mass destruction um, with a strong focus on nuclear weapons, but also chemical and biological weapons. And so part of our work um, during the course of this war has has been to examine the uh, nuclear threats Um, emanating from the war itself, and also to think a little bit about how the war is affecting the role of uh, nuclear weapons in the international system going forward. Thank you very much uh, for that, Matthew. Well, let's start with the news. So on Thursday, the American President Joe Biden, he warned that the risk of nuclear, quote, Armageddon was at its highest level since the 1962 Cuban Missile Crisis. Um, 
Could you talk us through your reaction to this? Do you agree with President Biden? Let me maybe uh, zoom out uh, on that question for a second and just, you know, think a little bit about why President Biden might be saying this um, and, you know, what what people have been concerned about during this war. So, you know, talking about Armageddon, um, nuclear Armageddon is is a reference to a, a full scale nuclear war. Right. It's it's uh, Armageddon is a reference to full scale exchanges between the US and Russia, NATO and Russia, between the UK and Russia, potentially. You know, this is the this is the worst case catastrophic scenario. So is he is the president just trying to scare people? Um, no, no, I don't think he is. Um, does he think that Vladimir Putin is is about to launch uh, hundreds and hundreds of, of strategic nuclear weapons? Uh, no, I don't think that that's what uh, President Biden thinks. Um, so, so why is he saying this? Well, the concern that some people have had uh, during this war is that um, out of either desperation or a, a desire to coerce um uh, the Ukrainians or um, Ukraine supporters in the West, Vladimir Putin might conduct some kind of uh, either nuclear explosion or nuclear strike. Um, and mostly uh, people have been thinking about the possibility of whether uh, Vladimir Putin would be uh, reckless and, and stupid enough to think that he could conduct a limited strike um, without that uh, strike leading to total catastrophe for for uh, Russia and for Putin himself. Right. So the, the the concern has been that Putin could could um, dream himself up a scenario where a limited use of nuclear weapons doesn't lead to the end of the world as we know it, um, and and to uh, the end of Russia as we know it, uh, and instead um, ends the war on favourable terms to Russia. This is not a new concept or a new worry when it comes to uh, a nuclear power um, fighting a war, and even, uh, nor is it a new concept or a new worry when it comes to Russia um, fighting war. The idea that um, Russia might convince itself uh, uh, during wartime that the way to um, end the conflict on its terms or to coerce its opponent and it, um, it would be to use limited nuclear weapons, that, that, that worries not new. It's a different in this scenario because the country that Russia has invaded and is is attacking um, is not a NATO member and so doesn't is not a member of a nuclear alliance itself. But that is a long-standing worry. So why the reference to nuclear Armageddon? I think that the important message to Russian leadership um, and one which uh, I, I I think is the correct one. Um, is to say, look, if you were to do something like this, even if you're convinced that um, the ultimate reaction wouldn't be catastrophic for Russia, you're wrong about the consequences of what you think you're doing because you are setting foot down a road uh, that you can't control anymore. Once you use a nuclear weapon, uh, the course of what happens next is out of your hands and... Way in the background there is the risk that any nuclear use escalates one way or another to full-scale catastrophic nuclear exchange. So, I, you know, the president, I don't think, is dealing in the in the prediction business, right? I don't think he's saying, um, you know, the, the the path we're on is is the path to Armageddon. What he's saying, I think, is he's trying to re 
link, to re-establish that link of concern in Russia's mind, that uh, in Vladimir, Putin, Vladimir Putin's mind, that if he was to use uh, nuclear weapons, he has no way of controlling what might come next. Does that mean that, you know, um, the automatic response to uh, any use of nuclear weapons by Russia anywhere would be all-out nuclear attack on Russia with hundreds of nuclear weapons? No, it doesn't. I don't think that's what uh, uh, Joe Biden is saying. I think it's about risk and um, changing uh, Russia's ability to manipulate nuclear risk um, to its advantage. Well, thank you very much for that, Matthew. Can I bring in a question about the nuclear power stations in Ukraine. Um, we've seen the, their potential weaponization over the course of this war. How, how does that change or impact your analysis of the tensions and of the threat? Russia's behavior um, uh, regarding the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, I think, is an example of uh, the recklessness uh, of conduct of the Russian armed forces and the Russian leadership. Um, and I think... A good thing to consider when thinking about that risk is uh, to think about chemical weapons as well. Russia's um, enabling of the Syrian regime um, to use chemical weapons in the Syrian war, um, and also um, Russia's uh, uh, use of uh, chemical weapon in Salisbury uh, are examples of a disregard for international norms when it comes to uh, weapons of mass destruction. And it's that kind of uh, disregard of international norms that is is leading Russia, uh, I think, to be so reckless um, when it comes to to the protection of um, civilian nuclear power plants in Ukraine. And so, you know, it is a it it should be a reminder to us that, uh, and just as we've seen in other actions Russia has taken during this this war, it should be a reminder to us that. Um, you know, the Russian leadership is willing to do things that are very risky and very destructive. And so, um, you know, you can't you can't count on uh, Russia to uh, abide by international norms. One of the things you mentioned in, in your intro when you talked about your work was the impact of what's happening in Ukraine on, on the rest of the world and what's happening with nuclear policy uh, elsewhere. Could you talk us through what, what you're seeing uh, in the rest of the world? If you wind the clock back uh, sort of... 10, 12 years ago, maybe 14 years ago to the beginning of the Obama, the Obama administration in the United States. We were at a point where there had been about 20 years of work since the end of the Cold War uh, to minimize the role of nuclear weapons in international security. The numbers of nuclear weapons uh, in the world had gone down um, sharply since the end of the Cold War. Um, international Treaties regulating nuclear weapons had um, um, been expanded and strengthened, and President Obama put um, a lot of uh, political capital and diplomatic effort into trying to set the world on a path um, to uh, eventual nuclear zero. I mean, I think the president himself was very realistic about how difficult that would be and how long it might take, but the idea was to keep those numbers going down, keep the role of nuclear weapons getting smaller and smaller, add extra diplomatic instruments to help you do that, and um, you know, get, get on that path further towards zero nuclear weapons. Um, what has happened since then, uh, in, in the, the 10, 15 years since then, is that uh, the 
conflicts of interest between major states in the United in the in, in the international system um, have got uh, bigger. So uh, the US and Russia, or, or the West in general and uh, Russia, have uh, major conflicts of interest, and that and since. Um, the annexation of Crimea and the, the uh, invasion of, of eastern Ukraine in, in 2014. That's got dramatically worse. Um, and also uh, the United States and China have a, a, a growing um, uh, strategic rivalry. And within those um, uh, conflicts of interest and rivalries, the role of nuclear weapons has grown, not shrunk. Nuclear weapons are more important um, in states' uh, security strategies, and, and they play a, a bigger role in um, in the in the day-to-day sort of relations between those those countries. Um, and in particular, China is expanding its nuclear arsenal, not not reducing it. And so, we have been on this path, unfortunately, for some time. Where instead of getting smaller, the role of nuclear weapons in the world is growing. And I fear that. Um, the the high profile role that uh, nuclear weapons have played in this conflict uh, is likely to reinforce that trend and 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 to make it worse you know nuclear risks i think um, whatever you think about the the immediate risks in this conflict nuclear risks i think are going up uh, and not down and so this in a sense the the um the the large amount of attention that's being paid to nuclear weapons issues because of this war uh, whether or not you think that's a good thing, and whether or not you think the threat, you know, the immediate threat of Russian use is is exaggerated or not, it's true that we are. This is probably, uh, you know, just the beginning of uh, a a world in which uh, people are going to have to think more regularly and uh, and more deeply uh, about nuclear weapons. Can I ask, as an analyst, when you're looking at the state of play amongst these rising tensions, just to sort of paraphrase Donald Rumsfeld a little bit, what what are the known knowns about what's happening? But I'm almost more interested in what you think the known unknowns are. What what don't we know that you're quite worried about? Worry is not the right word. The question is to factor in what you don't know to your to your analysis to make it better, and um, the. The destructiveness of nuclear weapons, the the um, the sort of scale of what nuclear weapons can do, should induce a, a degree of um, sort of conservatism and 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 um, restraint in in our analysis. If you know that at the end of a a, a potential road of escalation, uh, you you could get to nuclear weapons use, that that makes you more cautious, and and that is rightly that's right, I think. Um, but, you know, and I think if you if you look back from the beginning of this um, conflict, uh, nuclear deterrence has operated to some extent in both directions. I think that um, part of the reason why Russia has not expanded the scope of its attacks beyond Ukraine's borders so far is that um, NATO is a nuclear alliance. It's not the only reason. You know, Russia doesn't want a large-scale conventional war with, with NATO. Um, but it is part of the reason. Likewise, part of the reason why um, NATO has not wanted to get into direct conflict uh, with military conflict with Russia in this war is that um, Russia is a nuclear power, and, um, and and Russia's nuclear weapons obviously do have a deterrent effect as well. It's not the only reason. Again, the, the West does not want a large scale uh, conventional war uh, with Russia, which would be catastrophic in its own right. 
Um, but that, you know, that deterrent effect has been operating on both sides. And um, to an extent, I think uh, it has, you know, it is it has added to the uh, the suffering that uh, Ukraine has had to endure because it's meant that it's been one of the factors, not the only factor, but it's been one of the factors um, limiting how far the West is is willing to go in, in supporting um, Ukraine. What we don't know, uh, you know, we know that um, trying to manipulate uh, the um, opponent's sense of nuclear risk is part of the, the Russian toolbox, is part of Vladimir Putin's toolbox, because we've seen it before in, in previous conflicts and, and crises, although not to this, not to this extent, but we've seen it before. Um, what we don't know is what is the dividing line between um, that kind of uh, deliberate manipulation of risk on the one hand and an actual willingness to use nuclear weapons because uh, Vladimir Putin thinks the situation is so uh, dire. And, um, you know, that is where I think that the only answer really is to to take the risks very seriously, uh, to make sure that unintended escalation certainly doesn't happen. And then um, to try and to try and get the best sense of, uh, you know, what Vladimir Putin values and how he calculates um, uh, costs and benefits of, of various things he might be thinking about. You know, that's that's sort of what deterrence deterrence is. Um, there are no there are no magic answers uh, to those questions, um, and and so I think that the the leaders who have the tough job of deciding what to do next, um, you know, spend a lot of their time um, asking those those questions themselves. When you look back over the past um, six seven months of the war, is there anything in the behaviour of states or politicians that, or, or just in the way that tensions have ratcheted up and ratcheted down, that that surprised you as an analyst? I think that the you know the the, um, the danger in being a, a, an analyst who who tries to study these questions um, um, as a as a day job is that you you assume that um, you know everybody assumes that their their interest is is what everybody else cares about, and obviously that's not true. And um, it's Thankfully, um, since the end of the Cold War, people have not had to think about uh, nuclear weapons uh, all that much. You know, that, that process of them fading into the background um, was quite successful for a while. Of course, that's not that that's true in the Western world. It's not true um, uh, elsewhere, you know, in, 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 um, in relations between India and Pakistan, for example. The idea that the, cold, the post-Cold War period was one where the relevance of nuclear weapons was declining was never true. Uh, you know, we might want it to be true, but it, it never was true. And in a way, we're sort of, we're re-entering that world too. And so I don't, I don't know if surprised is the right word, but I think that there is work to be done in um, making sure that there's a kind of balanced approach uh, to these questions in public discussion. I mean, this, I suppose this is what every sort of dull expert like me, uh, dull analyst like me says, but, you know, media commentary that sort of inflates uh, inflates the, the the risks of things is is dangerous in two ways. One is that um, you overstate the threat, right? You, you, you let people get scared more than they should be. On the other hand, um, you also risk missing the very real dangers you know there are there are there are uh, serious nuclear risks to take into account it's just that um it might be a bit complicated so i think that uh for me you know a, a big challenge 
right now and a big challenge in, in the coming years is to try to make sure that people um, have ways of thinking again about um, nuclear weapons um, and and learning and studying. And, and, you know, part of that is because nuclear deterrence, uh, whether you... Um, uh, think it's uh, a very good thing or a terrible thing or 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 are somewhere in between um nuclear deterrence involves risk if there was zero risk of nuclear weapons ever being used and you knew that 100% there would be no deterrent effect they wouldn't you know they wouldn't convince anyone anyone to not to do anything so you know having nuclear weapons and trying to deter people with nuclear weapons is about risk uh, it's about living with risk, and um, an important part of, of that is also trying to carry on efforts, even though progress on disarmament is, is really bad at the minute, trying to carry on efforts to reduce that risk, mitigate that risk, even if we can't uh, get rid of the weapons themselves right now. Well, thank you for all of those answers, Matthew. That was really, really interesting. Um, Dom and Francis, you've been listening to this. Uh, what questions do you have for Matthew? Yeah, hi Matthew, Dom here. Very, uh, very glad to have you on. Thank you so much for your for your time. Um, you're talking about learning and studying about nuclear uh, diplomacy. What messages do you think other states, such as Israel, Iran, Pakistan, India, would take from the from the nuclear debate that's that's being brought to light between US and 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 Russia over Ukraine it, it seems as if the the, less, the lesson is you've got to have these things if you want to dominate the debate if you want to set the agenda if you want to you know lead the, the momentum have the initiative you've got to have these things i can't see anything any any reason why they would not seek to to um develop them. and with specifically with the middle east in mind i mean do, do you think um do you think that augurs well for for the for the iranian program yeah, thanks. That's an excellent question. I mean, I think the first thing to say about that is that the story's not written, right? We're, we are unfortunately not at the end of this war. Um, you know, we all very much, very strongly uh, hope um, that um, uh, nuclear weapons will not be used in this war. Um, obviously, it would change things uh, very much if they, they were. Um, and it depends how the war ends. You know, if, um, if, if, if it's judged that um, Vladimir Putin has successfully been able to uh, use um, nuclear threats to to get his way, um, it will you know it might make some people think that um, that uh, that's a, a a good idea and and something they'd like to to copy. But you know it, it's not that simple. Um, uh, part of it is that, uh, as I said doing deterrence successfully involves risk right it's not it's not automatic and it's not static it's also you know it depends on uh, the stakes people have in the conflict and how how that conflict is going the other thing though is that the path to getting nuclear weapons is uh, complicated and long and other countries can do something about it so you know the iranians for example also have to calculate with the risk that um, israel or, or the united states might take military action and they have to weigh that cost against um, whatever benefits they might see from from reaching a nuclear, nuclear capability uh, in the end so i think that um, i think that uh, you know, a we're not we're not there yet. B, it certainly isn't as as easy as just saying, well, you know, these things have been proven to be very very useful. We need them because people can do something about that. And bear in mind that Iran 
um, like 189 other countries, has signed a treaty, the Non-Proliferation Treaty, saying that it won't it won't build nuclear weapons. It's a non-nuclear weapon state. It has commitments not to do that. It's got the IEA um, checking its nuclear material to make sure it's not doing that. So, you know, we have there are tools to impede its progress. Um, and then the, I suppose the, the last thing is um, is that, you know, even with the, taking those caveats into account, it is probably still true that the effect of this war is to is to sharpen people's minds on nuclear weapons as part of um, a conventional a conventional war. You know, there's a there's a bunch of other trends going on in the world and in the world of military technology that are blurring the lines between uh, conventional warfare and uh, nuclear warfare. So, you know, you have um, you have uh, delivery systems like missiles, for example, that are capable of delivering either conventional uh, warheads or nuclear warheads, or you have systems of, of controlling those, um, uh, 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 those um, uh, missiles or delivery platforms that are involved in, in, both conventional uh, uh, war or uh, conventional um, uh, warfare or nuclear warfare, or you have new uh, conventional um, weapons that if you, or non-nuclear weapons and capabilities that if you use them uh, in large numbers or, or combined with other capabilities, they might have the same kind of the same effects as nuclear weapons, um, which means that 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 line, that boundary is being blurred a bit. So so one effect, I think, is to reinforce the idea that um, where you might have hoped uh, some time ago that the, the sort of sharp, bright dividing line between nuclear weapons and the rest of uh, conflict or, or, or international security um, was, you know, that, that line was nice and, and bright and sharp and, and there was a gap. Um, one of the things this, this war is showing is that you know the, the nuclear aspect can be mixed into it um, to a greater extent than we, we might like. I mean, there is there is a kind of uh, um, there is a kind of uh, normative aspect to this or argumentative aspect to this, which is you know do we want to? It's important not to get too preoccupied by by the nuclear issue, simply because if that's what uh, Vladimir Putin is is trying to do, if it's really all about just trying to scare the opponent, trying to intimidate them, trying to mix the nuclear shadow in um, to make things harder, then obviously you want to avoid um, exaggerating those risks. But I think I think the truth is that actually, you know, we are seeing more of an overlap between the between the conventional military uh, realm and the nu- nuclear military realm um, than we m- might have hoped was going to be the case by now. Hi, Matthew. Thanks so much for your expertise. It's really, really interesting to have this conversation with you. I have a couple of questions. My first is, is there anything that you think the West and the world should be doing to reduce the risk of nuclear escalation that it currently isn't? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, and it's on, um, it's obviously on a lot of people's minds. I think the first thing I have to say, as a you know non-government uh, analyst who's not privy to to what is happening um, uh, behind the scenes, you know, there may well be things um, happening in in private in um, communications or signalling between um, the US and Russia or NATO countries and Russia uh, that we can't see in public. And, and messages being sent about, you know, the potential uh, U.S. reaction to Russian nuclear use or Western reaction. 
Um, and those, you know, signals might not necessarily be the same as exactly the same as what's being said in public. So you kind of, it, it's quite hard to, to say that, you know, there's something that the West um, should be doing and isn't because, you know, perhaps, perhaps they are, <laughs> perhaps they already are, uh, to be honest. I mean, I, I think in, um, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a really difficult balance to be struck between uh, a reasonable effort to prevent unwanted escalation of the war, which I think is extremely important. And part of that is to keep um, certain uh, military channels of communication open so that people can, you know, if something happens by accident, for example, um, people can say that it was an accident and prove that it was an accident and, and, and make sure that doesn't lead to to escalation. And then there's and then there's the question of do you do you sort of want to limit uh, war aims uh, because you're worried about where this could all end? And you know I think it's important to you know to to recognise when the Ukrainians are, are fighting to get their own territory back. They didn't they didn't um, they didn't they're not the ones that launched an unprovoked uh, invasion of of Russia. And so you know there's a moral imperative to keep keep uh, the decisions about the future of the war in in Ukrainian hands and, and not seek to take it out of their hands. Um, what else is there is there to do? I, mean, I think my instinct would be to say that despite all the um, dangers, to, despite um, what Russia has, has shown about its, it, its, its recklessness um, uh, in this conflict um, and its willingness to use nuclear threats, there is still in the, the the medium and long term value in pursuing uh, arms control talks uh, strategic stability talks risk reduction talks with russia um and also with china uh, to to look for ways that even in the in the times of the most intense um tension and 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 fighting uh, you take some of the more catastrophic uh, risks or at least unnecessary risks um off the table in the short term that will be extremely politically politically difficult. It, it, we're not, you know, we're unfortunately, I think we're, we've moved away from a world where a, a new arms control treaty uh, that will be ratified by by uh, you know the, by the U.S. Senate and and other legislatures is possible uh, in the next couple of years. I don't think I don't think that's going to happen um, in the short term. Um, but you know, what, one of the things that we at Rusia are interested in and other people who study this issue, these issues are interested in is the concept of how you bring those those risks down short of having a, a legally binding uh, formal treaty. Thank you. And just one other final one from me. There's a line of thinking at the moment that the a strike by Putin is in some way increased by this robust Western response, that there are fears that by the West seemingly ignoring Putin's threats or dismissing them um, to a certain degree, or at least ramping up their own responsive rhetoric, that this increases the chances of him using some kind of tactical nuclear weapon or something like that as he becomes increasingly desperate. Then there's the other side of the argument, which is actually the opposite, that because Putin cannot win in terms of conventional warfare, as is becoming seemingly increasingly clear, without that strong robustness and deterrence from the West, he is actually more likely to use some kind of tactical nuke in Ukraine. So I just wondered what your response to that debate is. 
Yeah, well, that's the $64,000 question. I mean, um, where I'd put it is this. I have thought, uh, and, and a lot of other people have thought um, from uh, the beginning of this war that the the time of, of most danger would be um, if and when uh, Putin himself uh, felt on the verge of catastrophic defeat and personal threat to his his regime and um and that's because you know the stakes uh would be very high for him and the willingness to incur high risks that would grow um and the if if the situation is already bad then the um that uh, extra potential damage uh might you know that the, the risk is that he convinces himself that um, that the, the the risk is tolerable. Um, the there isn't an there isn't an easy answer uh, to that question at, at all, really. Um, I think that uh, you know the best we can do from the outside as as. Um, you know, analysts and, um, and and in fact, as journalists covering um, this this um, this aspect of the war, is to be really careful in not um, making the debate about it worse. And what I mean by that is to say that um, there are lots of um, threats or actions that Putin in the nuclear realm could take uh, without using a nuclear weapon. Um, which he hasn't yet uh, taken. So he could be more explicit in his nuclear threats, for example, um, about you know what what it is that could trigger a certain reaction and what the reaction would be. That would be one possibility. Or he could, um, in a very visible way, um, um, make changes to Russian uh, nuclear posture that other countries would be able to see. You know, as 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 sort of observers and commentators. I think it's really important to approach if and when that, that happens uh, to approach it quite carefully and responsibly and to make sure that uh, the, you know, we are very careful about reporting those facts and developments dryly, neutrally in a fact-based way and, and not um, overhyping it because we could be in, for a period where you know there there might be there might be a more acute uh, nuclear threats to come, and um, it's it'll be very important to take you know both take those seriously, um, but also not let them set off a, a a chain of reactions that gets out of control. So you know if if um, the threats become more specific, um, if they uh, if it involves tangible changes to, to Russia's nuclear posture, you know, things moving about or, or, or on alert or, or what have you. Um, it'll be important to just tread really carefully and to to say, uh, you know, this is what has happened, and, but or, but not to get over our skis and and um, and speculate or, or, or say that, um, you know, uh, doom is, is nearly upon us. I, I would just urge everybody to use the anxiety and the worry and the uh, fear that, uh, you know, they might have felt uh, reading headlines about nuclear weapons uh, during this war 
to um, to to study and think harder about about this topic, um, and to help help people like me and in, in, in uh, at Rusi and, and our efforts to, you know, provide um, factual information and objective analysis on on what the threats are and and what we can do about them. You know, we're, we're going to need people to be interested in this topic, and and I think in the UK, for example, there's been a long period where you know, a lot of political attention was centered around the question of, uh, you know, Trident, yes or no, nuclear weapons, good or bad. And where we're stuck at the minute now is in a world where nuclear weapons exist, efforts towards disarmament not going well, and we need to manage the, the world that we have and the risks that we have. And what we need, I think, in order for that to happen is for there to be interest in taking this threat seriously thinking about those old concepts of, of deterrence, of arms control um, a bit more deeply, uh, making sure that politicians are interested in them as well and, and, and think about them hard. And, 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 you know, just making sure that while we, we are um, inspired to, to work hard and concentrate hard on these issues because of the terrible things that can happen if, if nuclear weapons were used, uh, we don't let that fear overwhelm us and we try to channel it into, in, into something productive. Well, thank you very much, Matthew, for your time. Uh, Dom and Francis, are there any other updates we need to cover before I ask you for your final thoughts? Just very briefly, if I may, David, we spoke at length yesterday about the potential consequences within Russia amongst the Russian elite, within amongst the Russian military, about the increasing scale of the crisis as defeats mount up for the Russian army. And this has been an interesting story that Dom pointed out to me about um, Russia's defence minister, Sergei Shoigu, has been urged to kill himself over the defeat on the battlefield in a pretty robust, I think it's fair to say, broadside by one of the Kremlin's own officials. This comes from the newly appointed head of the Herzon region last week. So I just wanted to cite that very quickly as evidence of the kind of infighting that I think we can expect to see and that we predicted may occur uh, yesterday. The other story is one that I think is also important to raise is relating to the car bomb that killed the daughter of Alexander Dujin, the key ally of Vladimir Putin, um, or supposedly key ally. I'm sceptical of that, but he's often articulated as such um, uh, several weeks ago. And we now understand that the United States believes that the uh, the attack that killed his daughter, um, Dario Dugina, was actually um, sanctioned by parts of the Ukrainian government. Now, that's due to an assessment that uh, the New York Times has. The officials insist that Washington had no advanced knowledge of the attack, nor did it provide intelligence or other assistance that led to it. I just wanted to flag this because I think it is important because there was so much speculation at the time as to who was responsible. Was it internal Russian politics? Was it the Kremlin? If this is true that it is the Ukrainians, I think it is significant more for the re- the fact that Washington have, have, have been willing to let this intelligence leak out to the press. But I think it's more significant that there haven't been similar attacks since. I think reading between the lines, there's an indication that the attack was damaging to the Ukrainian reputation, potentially, internationally, that there were dangers of escalation and the international community was not happy about this. Um, Because I think 
if there, the fact there hasn't been other instances would speak to pressure potentially being put on Kyiv to resist such attacks in the future. As I say, a lot of speculation around this story, but I think it's important to flag the updates in that space because, as I say, it could have strategic ramifications on the way that Kyiv conducts this war. Well, thank you very much for that, Francis. We're essentially, unfortunately, at the end of our time today, I think. So can I just ask each of you very quickly for your your final thoughts? What would you want our audience to go away to think of? What are you looking at over the next few days, over the weekend? Well, for me, it's the the battlefield itself. I think something significant is going to happen on one of the fronts, if not both. So to the northeast, the Luhansk front, if Ukraine managed to get across that road, the north-south road going running down into Sivadonetsk, listed chance, then then I mean, there's nothing to suggest that they will they will have to stop there. There doesn't seem to be any credible Russian defence there, and then that could be extremely serious for uh, for that area um, of the Donbass. Likewise, on the south in the in the Hazon front, if that collapses, I mean that is hugely significant because there's an, an awful lot. Of, I mean, we think there's upwards of five thousand Russian troops north and west of the Dnipro, so over the Dnipro with the bridges dropped behind them. So so there's potentially a massive loss there. Um, and of course, the city of Hezon was the first regional city to fall and and the the biggest city to to be taken by Russia in this phase of the the war. Um, I mean. Getting there is one thing, taking the city for Ukraine quite another. But but if they manage to roll up the Russians such that they're at the city's gates, then that is also extremely significant. Um, and, and what could possibly influence both of those? The Russian Air Force, which we've not seen an awful lot of, seems very, very reluctant to go forward of its own lines. It doesn't seem to be able to do the close air support, as in the, the direct immediate support to troops in contact on the ground. Um, are we going to see the, the Russian Air Force have to come out? Um, at, at which point we'll see how how good these the, the NASAMs and all the other missiles that uh, all the other the capabilities that have been flowing in in the air defence role um, will be. Are they are they about to to take the take the stage the same as the kind of harm and high Mars and all the other bits and pieces that we've been talking about of late? So I think I mean the next time we talk um, it's going to be a Monday. I, I think there will be something significant over the weekend. Thank you very much, Dom. Uh, Francis Turnley. Thanks, David. I just want to return as my final thought to this question of the archiving and recording of the past on the back of the Nobel Peace Prize winners. I've just been pondering how a people who suffered the horrors of Stalinist oppression, by which I mean the Russians that saw millions executed, can countenance the erasure of the record of, of such crimes. I mean, after all, these are grandparents, parents, children who were all murdered. I think ignorance is part of it. it not, people not being taught about what happened and a deliberate attempt, of course, by the Kremlin to censor the past in an attempt to aggrandise its Soviet history. But I was also thinking, and I think it, it, it runs deeper than that, that the, the, the cultural psychological trauma of such an event the climate of fear, silence, shame, means that it's, it's actually easier not to come to terms with it when you're faced with such a, a heinous event. And of course, what that means is that such a cycle can continue, not only at home, but abroad, as we've been seeing in Ukraine, which of course makes the point that it is really vital that the work done by these Nobel Prize winners continues and is championed. But I suppose the tragic conclusion of, of what I'm saying is that, that suffering, 
doesn't always educate and liberate, but can drag one down to the depths of, of the abusers, which is a rather sobering and worrying thought, really. Well, thank you, Francis. Uh, thank you, Dom. Uh, Matthew Harris, would you like to just sum up some of your thoughts from today? If there's one uh, message I would like to give uh, in, in analysis of the, those dynamics we've been talking about, it's that uh, nuclear risk is, is growing um, and that we uh, have a responsibility to uh, try to limit it, but also not to uh, let that uh, worry and that fear overwhelm us. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk forward slash audio. You can also listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter to make sure you don't miss it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And we're especially interested to hear where you're listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells, Giles Gear, and Maddie Drury. And today on Twitter, Claire Hubble. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.